Go to Revelation chapter 1 with me and just take a little look at that, how, how great he is. Revelation chapter 1. I was on vacation about a week ago and I was doing some uh, reading in the book of Revelations for our wonderful day in the Lord broadcast, preparing some messages for that. And as I was reading through Revelation, I was thinking, you know, the, these in chapters 2 and 3 we have messages to the seven churches. And as I was looking at that more carefully, I began to realize that what Jesus is telling us here is what is important to him. If you ever ask yourself, what is important to Jesus? Not what is important to me, but what is important to Jesus? Uh, if I could sit down with the Lord himself and just talk to him and say, Lord, what is important to you? What would he tell me? I think he would tell me what he tells us in these seven churches, these messages to the seven churches. And so as we look at this together, I would mention that I didn't know how much time I'd have today. I knew it would be anywhere between uh, 20 minutes and 45, and I think I got 12. Uh, <laughs> A preacher, a preacher can always expand their sermon. Give them five minutes, they'll take that an hour and a half. But to cut a sermon down is uh, not, in our, not in our DNA. But I've got a seven-point sermon, and I'm going to preach about a half a point. So let's, let's jump in here the best we can and see what God has to say. We'll start off with the very first verse of chapter 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which soon must take place. So we start off with the fact that this book of the Bible is not the revelation of John, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's what he wants to tell us through John, and he has much to say about things that would take place in the future. It's the greatest prophetic book of Scripture and explaining to us things that he wants us to know. As the book progresses, especially chapter 1, we see the greatness of Christ that we have honored and glorified already this morning. In verse 8, he tells us he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Who, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. What a description of the Lord, beginning and the end, uh, encompassing all, all spheres. He is the Almighty. And then it goes on and gives a great description of Him. In verses 12 to 16, such a marvelous description that in verse 17 we find the Apostle John, when he saw Him, fell at His feet as a dead man. It overwhelmed Him. It was far too much for Him to be able to comprehend and, and handle and then we move on to, to look at verse uh, 19 where it says, Therefore write the things which you've seen, the things which are, and the things which take place after these things. He's saying to, to John, look, I want you to talk about what I've already seen in chapter 1, and the things that are happening in chapter 2 and 3 in the first century, and then the things that are going to happen in the future. And we are, uh, what a wonderful picture, what a wonderful revelation we're given about all those things in this marvelous book. In verse 20, he says that, uh, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, there are seven golden lampstands. And the seven stars of the angels are the messengers of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so this is a message to Christ's church. And then he begins in chapter 2 by telling us his message. And he tells us what he sees as important in his church. And what he sees as important in, in the, the believer's life, because the church is not an organization, it's an organism made up of people who know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, the body of Christ. And so he begins to tick that off in seven different messages to seven different first century churches that we find here in this book. Now, I'm not going to be able to look at these very carefully, obviously, but I want to hit some highlights as we go through. We start with the, the first church of Ephesus. And as he talks about that, he tells us in verse 1 that he is moving among the church. Uh, the church. He has the, the seven stars in his right hand. He walks among the seven golden lampstands. The church is his program. 
He walks among the church. He walks among God's people within the body of Christ. That's where he, that is where he is working. That is his front uh, uh, attack on all things. It is the church that he blesses. It is the church that he uses. It is the church that he is working among, as we see right here in these verses. He commends his church in verses 2 and 6 and 3 for all the things they're doing, their diligence, their hard work, their perseverance. Then he comes to verse 4 and he condemns them for one thing. And I do want to highlight this. He says, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. We've been talking every since about these words were written about what that means. What does it mean to leave your first love? What does it mean that a church has left its first love? Well, they haven't abandoned Christ. We know that from the rest of the picture here. They're diligently serving him. They're working hard for him. They're persevering. But he said, you've left your first love. And what, what could that be except perhaps that their, the love for Christ, their first love, has now cooled off. You know how that is. You know, you, it's so exciting to see these uh, four today give their testimonies. They're newly, newer b- believers and are excited about Christ. And that's wonderful. But sometimes as we move on in the Christian life, that cools off. That's sad, isn't it? And some of you are here today in exactly that category. You, you could have given these testimonies today 20 years ago or 10 years ago. But today you're kind of cool. It isn't all that exciting to you anymore. Christ doesn't, you don't lift up Christ in your heart like you once did. You've left your first love. What does he say to do about that? Well, in verse, four, uh, verse 5, he gives us a three point, three steps, all that we could start with the word letter R so you can remember it. If you're in a position where you are a Christian, you know you're a Christian, but that love that you once had for Christ has cooled off, and you don't have that enthusiasm for Him you once had, and you're just going through the motions, and, and you're coming to church, and you read your Bible once in a while, and you're, you're a decent Christian, you might even minister in the body, but you don't have that passion, that love, that enthusiasm you once had, what should you do? Well, he doesn't leave us to our own devices. He says in verse 5, Therefore, remember. First of all, remember. Remember what Christ has saved you from. Remember the days when you didn't know him and and the sin that was there infesting your life. And remember from what you come from and remember those days. Then he says, repent. Turn around. Repentance is key. In our passage, if we had more time to look at it, eight different times he tells these churches to repent. Repentance is the beginning of salvation. You don't turn to Christ until you turn from sin. And it's also part of the Christian life as we constantly are recognizing the issues in our life, the sins in our lives, the failures in our lives. The first step is to recognize that, to change our mind about those things, to turn from those things, to repent of those things, and to turn to Christ. And then we can say the next one is to remember. He says, and do the deeds you did at first. Do what you did before. Go back to those things that that brought you that great love for Christ, that brought you that great heart and passion for Him, that enthusiasm. Go back to those things. What did you do at first? Well, you read your Bible. You came to church and sang those songs with your heart. You, You told other people about Jesus Christ because you loved Him so much. You did all these things not because you had to, not because the pastor said to, not because it was a duty, but because it was embedded deep in your heart. Go back. And redo that. Repent, remember, repent, and repeat. If you do that, you have a reward. If we had time again, each of the rewards are given to the churches, have something to do with eternal life. In this case, verse 7, 
He says, I will grant to you to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. The tree of life shows up again in chapter 22. It's a place where all of God's children from all time will gather and partake of the life that we have with Jesus Christ forever and ever. The tree of life is promised to those who truly know him, who have truly placed their faith in him. Here's another church, a very different church, the church of Smyrna. It's the weakest of the churches from the outward appearance. It's only got four verses here given to it. And it's, but it's a church that there is no correction whatsoever given to it. But he says to that church, he says, uh, verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. What a picture. If we could have more time to look, we'll find this church is under tribulation. It's, it's poor. It's being blasphemed against. It's suffering. Some of, the, some of his own people are being put in prison for Christ. What does he say to do? He says, you're rich. Now, the world doesn't look at you as rich. You're a little church. You don't have great facilities. You don't have a lot of money. Your pastor doesn't speak at the big conferences. Nobody writes books about your church, but you are rich. Well, how many churches today think they're rich and they're not? But Christ knows who's rich in him. How, how important it is that we have the testimony of Christ about us, not the testimony of, of what the world might think, which is often wrong, but Christ is never wrong. You are rich. What a, what a pre- beautiful picture. And he says to them, verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Don't be afraid. Yeah, you're going through this stuff. I'm not saying you're not. The God, this false gospel of prosperity that you come to Christ and all goes well from now on is a false gospel, folks. They're going to, go, they're going to suffer. They're going to go through hard times. But what does he say to do? Do not fear what you're about to suffer. But be faithful, he says in verse 10, and to death, and I'll give you the crown of life. What's important to Jesus in the first, to the first church is that we love him with all of our hearts. What's important to the church of Smyrna is that they be faithful, even in the hardest of times. Faithfulness is the key. Some of you know, have heard of B.B. Warfield, perhaps the greatest theologian has ever raised in American soil. Benjamin Warfield was a, a great professor at Princeton back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He wrote, he wrote books that we're still reading today. He wrote books that we're, that we're still looking at today, still being published. A great man of God. But what most people don't know was that in 1976, at the age of 25, he married a girl by the name of Annie. And on their honeymoon, Annie was struck by lightning. I thought that was interesting in that song we sang today about God controls the, the lightning. Her, his wife was struck by lightning and was paralyzed. For the next 40 years, he never left his house for over two hours at a time taking care of Annie. He loved her. He cared for her. His, his whole life was changed from that point on. They never had children. They never had the joys of, of a normal life. They never, he never traveled and, and uh, invited to things because he couldn't go. He stayed by the bedside of his wife for 40 years. And yet he wrote these words as he was contemplating Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where we're told that God works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. Ben Warfield wrote these word, words. The fundamental thought is that universal government of God and all that comes to you is under his controlling hand. The secondary thought is that the favor of God to those who love him. If he governs all, then, listen, nothing but good can befall those to whom he would do good. And he 
will also govern all things so that we will reap only good from what befalls us. And I want to say, are you kidding me, Ben Warfield? Your wife just got struck by lightning. You had to sit by her bedside for 40 years. She never left her bed. And you're writing like that? And you're saying that all things come from the hand of God are good because God is always good. Are you kidding me? And then he goes on to say this. It is because we cannot be robbed of God's providence that we know amid whatever encircling gloom that all things work together for good to those who love him. You believe that? Uh, You believe it when things are good. You believe it when things are easy. Do you believe it when you have a hard time, when things are rough, when things are sorrowful? He writes to a church here going through suffering for Christ's sake. And he is saying basically, do not fear because I am God. Oh, what if they take away our property? We're fearful today, aren't we? We're anxious people. What if they take away our our property? Well, do not fear. God's in control and God is good. What, what if they take away our, our, our food supply? What if food is short? God is good and God is in control. What if they put us in prison for the cause of Christ? God is good and God is in control. Do not fear. Wouldn't it be great if Christians could obey the word of God when it says do not fear? We do not fear not because of us but because of him. And the church of Smyrna is given that wonderful testimony. Now, as much as I know you'd like to stay here until 1230, I'm going to go all the way back to the last church, Church of Laodicea, and the last church in this thing, chapter 3, verse 14. This is the church that thought it had it all together, and they didn't. In verse 14, verse 15, it says, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold, and I wish that you were cold or hot. Because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now that passage doesn't mean I want you to either be hot for Christ or cold for Christ. It means I don't want you to be useless for Christ. Lukewarm water has no real value. You ever get on a hot summer day, you're mowing grass or whatever, and you go over to a water hose that's in your yard, and you turn, turn, pick up the water hose and drink it, and the water's hot? It takes a real person to swallow that water, let me tell you. It's lukewarm. It's awful. You don't want it. He says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth because you're useless. You're useless. But you know the hard thing? The bad thing here, verse 17, because you say, I'm rich and I've become wealthy and I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you're wretched and you're miserable and you're poor and blind and naked. What an awful thing to think about. That you do not know your own spiritual condition. That you do not know, you think you're rich, you think you're special, you think you really got it together, and you do not know you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. What should we do when we recognize that? Verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold, refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and the eyes salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Their spiritual poverty could be remedied by what the gold that Christ offered. Their spiritual nakedness could be remedied by the, the white garments that God Christ offered. Their spiritual blindness could be remedied by the eye savvy offered. Because Christ loved them, what does he tell them to do? He tells them in verse 19, repent. Eight times he tells these churches 
to repent. And then he closes it down with an invitation in verse 20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. This verse of scripture is often uh, hard to understand. Some say this can't have anything to do with salvation because he's writing to churches and he's writing to Christian people. But I'm not so sure how many of these people were saved, especially in this last church. So I think the, the invitation here could be to both unsaved people and to Christians. To the unsaved, he's saying, look, I'm standing at the door knocking. I'm offering you the invitation of eternal life. I'm offering you the invitation to, to be saved from your sin and eternally know me and that you'll be granted to set down, verse 21, with me on my throne forevermore. But you have to trust in Christ. You have to know your sinner. You have to know that you have to repent of that sin and turn to Christ for salvation alone, by faith alone. But he offers that invitation. He stands at the door and he knocks. But for the believer, very similar thing. Have, are you walking with him? Are some of the descriptions he's giving here fitting you and shouldn't? Are you, are you not where God wants you to be for whatever reason? He stands at the door and he knocks. He says, I invite you to come to me. And you know what you get when you do that? Here's, here's the sweet thing. Look at verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne. And I, will, and I also overcame and sat down with my father, father on his throne. And then look at the end of verse 20. I will come into him and will dine with him and him with me. You want sweet fellowship with Jesus Christ? You, you want to know that sweet fellowship with Christ that only he can give you? He offer, offers that fellowship to you and I if we'll open that door to him. What a picture he gives us. Two things are constantly being repeated throughout these chapters and to these churches. Repentance, which I've already mentioned, and the second thing, if you'll note at the very end of every message, he says this, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are you, here? Are you listening? Yeah. Do you have an ear to hear the message to the churches? Are you paying attention? If you pay attention, hear what the Spirit says to the churches and heed those messages. Thomas Watson, one of the greatest of all the Puritans, wrote this. He says, if one loses his name, it is written in the book of life. If he loses his liberty, his conscience is free. If he loses his estate, he owns the pearl of great price. If he, if he meets a storm, he has a harbor. God is his God and heaven is his heaven. If God is our God and our soul is safe, it is hidden in the promises, in the wounds of Christ, and in the decrees of God and we should want for nothing more. My friend, if you don't know Christ is your Savior today, He's standing at the door knocking. He wants you to come to Him for salvation. If you're here as a Christian and you're not walking with Him, He calls you to, to let Him give you sweet fellowship with Him today. That you can come to Him and know Him in a very special way. He is yours. He died for you. He loves you. He wants to be your Lord, your Savior your friend, your master, your God. He calls on us to open that door. Father, we thank you now for your truth. We just rushed through quickly. We pray these words are helpful to those that are here. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful day and the baptisms we've seen. We pray for these, these, these folks as they've come to Christ. May each of them walk with you and love you and be consistent going forward.
day after day, year after year, decade after decade. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.